A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm a 71-year-old retired police officer. I've been trained to observe people and their surroundings and to relay them accurately. My first encounter was in October of 1991. I and a group of friends leased a 4,800-acre ranch in Young County, Texas. I was the only bow hunter in our group. That allowed me to add a month to my deer hunting season. The night before the October 1st bow season opener, I was in my tent when I was awakened around midnight by a loud screaming noise. I heard a series of three or four evenly spaced screams. It sounded like a woman in distress. At the time it was more than ten miles to the nearest house. After settling down I wrote the screams off to a mountain lion. I got up at three hours and was in my stand well before daylight. I climbed up into my ladder stand and found three rocks stacked where my butt sits. After my morning hunt, I left an apple beside the stacked rocks. 
I had five bow stands for different wind directions and found three stacked stones in all of them. I never heard the screams or had any problems for the next 20 years hunting that place. Fast forward to 2003. Then I was hunting a ranch 13 miles south of Seymour, Texas in late October. I was in my ladder stand well before daylight. I had a ladder stand in some timber that ran along a fence line that bordered a huge mesquite tree flat. The cold front that I've been waiting for arrived half an hour or so before daylight. An intense thunderstorm broke out, so I decided to stay put as any shelter was three miles away. I had my rain gear on, and it was so comfortable I fell asleep. I was sitting 15 feet above the ground and was awakened by a loud crash of thunder following a series of lightning bolts that lit up the sky bright as day. I glanced over to the right and standing not five feet from me and down five or so feet stood the most amazing thing I have ever seen. It was a very hairy, very tall and muscular human-like creature. This creature stood at least ten feet tall and was covered in light brown silver hair. It had a huge head sitting on vast and muscular shoulders. It had no neck, a heavy brow ridge, and a defined human-like nose. The eyes were deep set with dark rings below the eyes. It had heavy dark eyebrows and the whites of its eyes were coffee-colored or bloodshot. The iris of both eyes were a yellowish-green color, and the pupils were very dilated. Its face was human-like, with a full beard and little or no mustache. The lips were darker than the facial skin and were normal-sized in relation to his face. The color of the skin on its face was a medium brown, and the arms were longer than a human arm. It must have weighed at least 700 pounds. Its legs were thick and muscular. When it exhaled, I could see his breath as the temperature had just dropped to mid-thirties Fahrenheit. The hair covering his body was dripping water from the longer hairs. I have no idea if it was male or female. I do not know how long it had been there watching me. The odd thing is that I felt no fear, just a sense of wonderment of being in the presence of this amazing creature. If this being had wanted me, it could have snatched the life right out of me with no trouble. After the next lightning flash, I looked back in its direction, and it was gone. I never saw it again. I did leave another apple on the seat in my ladder stand, and it was gone the next time I sat at that stand. I forgot to mention that as the sun rose, I could see that the tree I was in was covered in monarch butterflies. As the sun rose, every tree I could see for at least half a mile down the fence line was covered in them. They left in waves of tens of thousands until the last ones left at 9.30 hours or so. It was a wonderful experience. About three weeks ago, I drove my son out to a national park for a little weekend camping trip. We took the 410 out from Tacoma into Mount Rainier, a place my own dad used to take me when I was a kid. I wanted my son, David, who's two and a half, to find the same joy of the wilderness as I had, but I'm quite convinced that he will be terrified of forests for the rest of his life. 
When we arrived at Friday, the weather was crisp and the first signs of spring had finally made themselves known. We walked, or rather, I walked with David on my shoulders for about two, maybe three hours from the parking lot into a small, desolate camping ground with a pre-made fire pit. I'm not a very overprotective parent, so I let David wobble around a bit while I pitched the tent. Just as I was about done and was getting ready to unload our three-day supply into the tent, I heard David make some sounds from behind me. Now I recognized these sounds immediately, as they are the sounds he usually makes when he's excited about something. I turned around and saw him sitting in the grass, about twenty feet away, staring into the woods. More strangely, he was doing this thing he does when he's particularly excited about something, in which he's slapping both of his thighs repeatedly. I slowly walked over while trying to keep an eye on both him and the woods at the same time, but there was nothing in the tree line I could make out. When I was finally by his side, I asked him what he had seen, and at this his response was, Monkeyman, monkeyman, he was smiling, still slapping his thighs, and as much as I tried to match his excitement like a good parent should do, suddenly, the serenity of the woods was replaced by a sense of unease. I fixed my eyes on the tree line and peered in very, very carefully. It was just such an incredibly strange thing for him to say. I picked David up, not wanting to leave him alone anymore, at least until I could regain some clarity and walked into the tree line. I don't know how many of you are parents, but the last thing you want to do when you're taking your kid out for a fun weekend is frighten him. I mention this because the sensible thing might have been to hush him, to tell him to keep quiet for a while. But then, I also knew that realistically, this was just an imaginative manifestation. After a few minutes of scouting around with David up on my shoulders, I decided to return to camp. It was about 3.30, I believe, and so I made us some lunch, still keeping an occasional eye on the space at which David had been clapping and yapping just a few minutes before. As much as I tried to forget it, I just couldn't. I'm not superstitious. I don't believe in aliens, ghosts, or Bigfoots. But I suppose my parental instinct was simply in too much of a high gear for me to let go, so as the cold sun was setting, I decided to ask David a bit about what he had seen. To understand my story a little better, it might be relevant to mention here that David has a mild learning disability, which has particularly impaired his speech. He can understand fine, but his ability to communicate has lagged behind somewhat. As I was getting the fire going, I asked him about the Munkerman. I asked if it was a big Munkerman. David thought about that for a second. He then laughed and nodded. I then asked if it seemed like a nice monkeyman, and David once again giggled in approval. I wasn't really sure what else to ask. Nightfall struck, and on full bellies, I read a chapter from a book to him as he fell asleep in his sleeping bag. When I fell asleep myself, I had almost forgotten about monkeyman. I awoke in pitch darkness. The fire pit was out. I reached out to feel for David and panic struck me hard. He wasn't in the tent anymore. 
with only my underwear on, I stormed out, but realized it was too dark to see anything, so I dropped back into the tent and tore my flashlight out of my bag. I was screaming his name all at the same time. With only the weak beam of a flashlight I didn't think I would ever have to actually rely on, I shone it around in circles, still calling for David. For some reason, I ran towards the spot at which David had been so transfixed in the daytime. I shouted his name into the trees. As I trotted inwards into the pitch-black woods, I was too frantic to notice how badly my feet were getting scraped up by the bark and stone. After only about a minute of walking, I saw something that made me drop the flashlight and bolt forward. David was standing there, peering into the darkness, utterly still. I grabbed onto him hard and began to sob. Still clutching him tightly, I picked up the flashlight again, which had been idly beaming the ground, and scouted around, fending off the darkness. I could see nothing around. As I carried him back, looking over my shoulder, I asked what had happened. He implied that he didn't know, and that he was tired. David has had a long history of sleepwalking. That night, I locked up the tent from the inside with a padlock. I only got about three hours of good rest. David slept like a rock, despite my trembling embrace. The following morning, I cooked some eggs and bacon on the camping stove. David had no recollection of what had happened and seemed content to continue the trip. I thought it would be incautious to shrug off last night's event as mere sleepwalking, especially considering the monkeyman business, but also thought it would be a bit too silly to cancel the entire trip over it. Thus I made a promise to myself that if anything else were to happen, we would drive back to Tacoma at a moment's notice. The rest of the day was actually quite nice and helped me take my mind off of things. David was at first a little upset at not having the iPad, but eventually discovered that nature can be just as cool as pixels. We made some bark boats with faces on them and set them downstream, watched squirrels and listened to the birds. It was everything I had hoped the trip would be. At dusk, when the trees stretched long shadows across the grass, David was getting too cold and too tired to play anymore so I decided we would spend the rest of the day in the tent. I had brought along this game where you have to trace the outline of a person with an electrode, and if your aim is off, it makes a funny sound. I don't remember what it's called, but David found it hilarious. It's dumb, but supposedly helps with motor development. At one of David's turns, he made an error, and the little speaker made the sound again, and David bellowed into laughter. What happened next filled me with a sense of fear that I doubt anything will ever match. From about 150 feet away, I heard the exact same laugh that David had made, only that it was much deeper. It was almost like when you record yourself speaking, then digitally pitch it down. I froze, and this time, I couldn't hide my reaction from David. I could tell by his face that he had heard it too. I lifted a finger up to my lips to communicate him that we needed to be quiet. It was at this moment that I also noticed that the sun had set completely. I also noticed just how dead quiet the woods were. 
Every second felt like an eternal minute as we sat there in the tent, absolutely still, enveloped in the silence. When the sound of my own heartbeat in my ears finally ceased a little, I slowly leaned over towards my backpack to get my handgun out. When I turned around to face David again, I saw that he had picked up the electrode again. I sternly removed it from his hand and whispered with equal sternness, Not now, David. Then, just as I had said it, a low, broken voice whispered from literally inches from the tent, not now, David. The next thing I'm aware of is that I'm shooting wildly through the fabric of the tent in the direction of the sound. David is screaming. And as the gunshots ring throughout the woods, I hear the last remnants of something sprinting away. With my hand violently trembling, I opened the padlock and jumped out with a flashlight in my left hand, aiming the faint beam into black nothingness. I grabbed David, stuffed everything within arms, reached into the backpack, and ran. The way back was pure terror. There was not a second at which I did not feel as if something was right behind us, ready to leap out from behind us or the side of the trail out from the darkness. The only thing I could say to David was, It's okay, you'll get the iPad soon. Do you want the iPad? Nothing ever leaped out at us, nor did I hear anything except for the rushing of the wind and the occasional running stream by the trailside. I was so out of it that even in the car, I kept checking the back seat just to see if there was something sitting in it, ready to destroy us. I don't know how to explain to David's pediatrician what happened in Mount Rainier. I haven't even told his mother the full story, only that I thought someone came up to our tent and that I fired a warning shot. Needless to say, David hasn't been the same since. He has been getting constant headaches, which might be from damage to his ears by the gunshot. I don't really know how to end the story, but one thing is for certain. Never ever take your kids out to Mount Rainier National Park. In the sprawling city of Dallas, Texas, Detective John Matthews had seen it all. His years on the force had taught him to handle the darkest corners of human nature with a sense of resolve and calm. But one day, while rummaging through the dusty archives of his precinct, he stumbled upon a box of old, unsolved case files that piqued his interest. John was a man of methodical thinking and the mysteries contained within those files intrigued him. Each case was tied to a horrific and unsolvable crime, with a common thread of unknown predators lurking in the shadows. Yet there was one case that left him particularly shaken. As he read through the file, he found himself transported to a chilling narrative. The case revolved around a young police officer named Mark Williams, who had been sent to investigate a gruesome crime in a national park. The details were disturbing. It was as if a savage beast had torn through them. But what caught John's attention was not the brutality of the crime itself, but the young officer's detailed description of an otherworldly creature. According to the file, Officer Williams and his partner had stumbled upon a scene of horror deep within the snowy expanse of the National Park. 
The body of one of the campers lay torn and lifeless, and the surroundings were marked with signs of a violent struggle. But it was the creature Williams had described that sent shivers down John's spine. The creature was tall, completely black, and stood on two legs. Its arms hung down by its sides, dragging through the snow as it walked away from them. The most unsettling aspect was its face, or rather, the lack of one. The creature had no discernible facial features. No eyes, no nose, no mouth. Just plain flesh stretched across its head. Officer Williams had written in the file that he believed the creature was responsible for the camper's death. He described the encounter with a mixture of fear and disbelief, struggling to find words to describe the incomprehensible creature he had witnessed. As John read those words, he couldn't shake the feeling that this case was different from the rest. There was a haunting authenticity in Officer Williams' account, something that made the hair on John's arms stand on end. The veteran detective found himself pulled into the mystery, unable to let go of the image of that faceless creature walking away into the snowy wilderness. Days turned into weeks as John delved deeper into the case. He combed through the evidence, the photographs, and the witness statements. He reached out to Officer Williams, who had long retired from the force and managed to arrange a meeting. Sitting across from each other in a dimly lit coffee shop, Officer Williams recounted the story once more. His eyes held a mixture of lingering fear and resignation. He told John how the encounter had changed him, how it had shattered his understanding of the world. As John left the coffee shop, he knew that he had to find answers. He couldn't let this case remain unsolved, couldn't let the memory of that creature fade into obscurity. With each passing day, his determination grew stronger. He re-examined every detail, retraced Officer William's steps, and consulted experts in fields ranging from cryptozoology to mythology. He uncovered legends of similar creatures in various cultures, creatures that existed on the fringes of human belief. But despite his efforts, John found himself at an impasse. The case remained open, its mysteries unsolved, and the faceless creature's existence unproven. Yet deep down, he knew that some truths were too unsettling to be accepted by the world at large. The first incident took place nearly 25 years ago now. I was stationed at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, went camping with a friend of mine in the southern part of the Alligator River National Wildlife Refuge. This is an isolated area where you can only gain access by boat or four-wheel drive vehicle. We arrived at our destination around 8 p.m. on a Saturday evening. After setting up camp, we decided to do some fishing before it got dark. It would take about 15 minutes to get open water by boat, so we left the campsite with four or five other guys who were also spending the night there. One member of our party noticed some tracks on the eastern shore of the river. We quickly got our flashlights and were amazed to see 15-inch long humanoid-like tracks in the sand. These tracks were only about two feet apart and ran straight down to the water's edge. 
The ground was soft and sandy so we could very easily make out the shape of these prints. We didn't miss seeing the claw marks or other strange markings that would be associated with the hoax. I myself measured one track at around 17 inches long and 7 inches wide. The depth of these tracks indicated that something very heavy made them and did not notice this approach. There is no way that these were made by a bear. They were too narrow for the front paws and the space between each step was far too large. Our other companions who were all military policemen did not want to stay around very long, so we decided to follow the tracks upstream against our gut instinct. After about 30 minutes, all of our flashlights died in unison, as if some electrical outage happened. We had replaced all the batteries prior to this trip, so we couldn't figure out why this happened, but it became very dark very quickly, and we began hearing strange sounds in the distance, kind of like heavy breathing. This went on for hours, and since nobody wanted to spend any more time there than necessary, we returned back to camp. I've always wondered what made those footprints. I believe this area is heavily populated with Sasquatches, and soon after this incident, I read an article about an upcoming Sasquatch hunt in this very area. One of the hunters who was interviewed claimed that he had seen 15-inch tracks about one month earlier on the Alligator River. Several other sources also mentioned seeing these huge footprints around the Fort Bragg area. Now, the second incident took place almost three years after while attending college at Norfolk State University. My girlfriend and I at the time were working part-time for a private security firm. We had to monitor some abandoned buildings that were having issues with break-ins. The first few nights were pretty well, but by Saturday night things had got really bad. We both kept hearing these loud screams all night beyond in the woods, sounding like someone mixed a lion, a goat, and a wolf all in one like a hybrid of some sort. It terrified us worse, it seemed to be coming from all directions. There was no way to track the sound, it would seem like it was coming from the north, then all of a sudden the southeast. This went on for roughly three hours. We could hear there were multiples of them, whatever they were but they weren't any normal animals I'd ever heard of my life. We've known other military servicemen who've also had some pretty bone-chilling experiences with these creatures in the area. It seems like this is a common occurrence here in the South. I know for a fact that something is awry out here in these woods. Sometimes even my own rifle don't make me feel safe. I'm a seasonal hunter, but for years I dedicated my life to the study of predators and their intricate relationships with their ecosystems. My days were filled with observations, data collection, and a burning curiosity that drove me to understand the delicate balance of nature. One sunny morning, as the forest awakened around me, I found myself deep within the woods. The rustling leaves and distant calls of birds were familiar companions, but this day held something entirely new. As I quietly maneuvered through the undergrowth, my heart raced with anticipation. It was in these moments that the forest revealed its secrets to me. 
and then I saw it an enigmatic figure crouching amidst the shadows. The creature defied comprehension, its form a grotesque blend of humanity and death. Long, emaciated arms hung limply against its bony frame, its chest protruding with an eeriness that hinted at the presence of death itself. Its skin, a sickly shade of white with undertones of gray, bore an uncanny resemblance to the pallor of malnutrition. The most unsettling aspect was its head a human head, but distorted by starvation and agony. It was as if a dying human had been fused with the essence of the forest, becoming something entirely otherworldly. Yet what I mistook for white fur initially was nothing more than the creature's own skin stretched tautly over its bony features. Its eyes, though, held me in their eerie gaze. They were disproportionately small compared to its head, yet they shone with an intensity that was impossible to ignore. The light of the sun seemed to be captured within those eyes, reflecting back at me like beacons of otherworldly luminescence. In that moment, I felt a chill run down my spine, as if I were staring into the depths of some ancient, forbidden knowledge. As a scientist, my instinct was to remain hidden and observe, to document this encounter as I had countless others. My heart pounded in my chest as I positioned myself behind a tree, my pulse in sync with the rhythm of the forest. The creature moved with an eerie grace, its movements almost unnatural in their fluidity. For a while it roamed the clearing, its presence commanding a silence that was both awe-inspiring and terrifying. And then, without warning, it emitted a screech that pierced the air like a banshee's wail. My breath caught in my throat as the creature vanished into the depths of the woods, leaving behind an aura of mystery that clung to the air. I remained hidden for a long while, grappling with what I had just witnessed. My mind raced, attempting to categorize this creature within the confines of my knowledge. But there was nothing, no data, no precedent, no explanation that could account for its existence. As I returned to civilization and shared my encounter with others, I was met with skepticism and disbelief. How could I, a scientist, expect anyone to accept such a fantastical tale? But I stood my ground, asserting that the unknown remains a part of our world, waiting to be discovered. This is a true story, one that has challenged my understanding of nature and the boundaries of scientific knowledge. I am a wildlife biologist, a seeker of truth in the wild, and I can attest that even in our modern age, Mysteries remain hidden in the heart of the untamed world. Okay, so I know what you are thinking, and I am actually not a true believer of Bigfoot or whatever this was. But this man claims that what he saw was true, and he will never be able to get what happened out of his mind. Here is what he told me. So he was an older fellow who loved spending his time in rural Alaska. I'm not talking a couple hundred people, but completely by himself in his cabin in the woods. So during the winter he was out by himself as usual about ten miles from the nearest village. And he had just got done with his chores and whatnot. He was settling down and had just stoked the fire for the night. 
so he decided to go to bed, so he did. About 1 or 2 a.m., he suddenly woke up and got the feeling like he was being watched by something. He was pretty shook up by it and eventually got back to sleep. This is where it got kind of weird. When he woke up the next morning, he looked out his two-story window, remember cabin's floors, maybe shorter than normal buildings. And to his surprise, there were frozen marks on the window of what looked to be to hands and a nose pressed on the window, as if someone was cupping their hands around their eyes trying to look into the window. This obviously could not have been a person as he was alone, and it was more than one story off the ground. He was pretty freaked out by it and went outside to look for some tracks or anything, but he found nothing in the... No tracks and no trails leading anywhere into the woods. This man was not crazy or a drunk. He was well known in the village and he was a really nice guy. The story is a little hard to believe, but it is what he said happened. It gives me the creeps just thinking about being alone in the middle of nowhere and having something try look in my window at me in the middle of the night. Had an encounter a couple of years ago where I was in the woods near a river that has never had any man-made development when my machete disappeared. Moments later, it appeared next to me, back in its sheath, as if from nowhere. So I went on a hike at this nature preserve, and when I reached the end, I was at this river. It was a peaceful spot, but not the most amazing spot I have ever seen or anything like that. I went to leave back towards my car, and after about a quarter of a mile, I hear what I thought was like a girl giggling. I assume some people must have been coming down the river on a boat or something. When I looked over my shoulder, I noticed that my machete was gone but the sheath was still firmly in my backpack. I figured I must have dropped it when I stopped, so I turned around and went back. I looked all over the place and no sign of my lost machete. I figured this place seemed like a good spot to set up a trail cam. There was a lily pond pretty close to the river where I thought wildlife would come to drink. As I walked to the side of the trail, the sheath of the machete suddenly falls to the ground and I leave it there, grumbling under my breath that I must have lost the machete earlier on in the trail and just didn't notice. I remove my backpack and kneel down to get the trail cam out. I think I hear someone giggle again and I stand up with the camera to go put it on a nearby tree and stop in my tracks because as I go to turn around I notice that my machete is back in its sheath and is sitting right next to my pack. Now I have left the sheath on the ground several feet away when it fell out and I had no idea where the machete itself was and now it was suddenly back. I'm like two or three miles away from my car. I look around and see nothing and no one. I squat back down and start putting my camera away as I feel myself about to freak out. And I don't know, I just got a grip somehow, calmly put my pack back on, and then walked back over by the riverbank where it was wide open. I did not grab the machete. I left it where it was. I felt like there was no way a person had snuck up on me like that, and I never heard nor saw anything other than that weird giggling. 
I figured if something could do all of that without me being none the wiser, then I definitely couldn't fight it. So I sparked up a cigarette and then said, Thank you for not taking my head off. I respect the forest, and I'm not here to mess anything up. I'm going to leave now. And then I grabbed the machete and walked out of there, feeling like it would disappear again. I held it in my hand the whole way back. I still don't know what the hell happened. I've been back several times and every time I go now, there is some kind of animal there. One time it was a glimpse of the biggest buck I have ever seen. Another time it was a bunch of raccoons running around in broad daylight, and they were not concerned with my presence at all. Anyone have any idea what I encountered? I've tried to research, but can't find anything that sounds like what I experienced. Sitting by the crackling fire, surrounded by the hushed sounds of nature, I listened intently to Moki's tales. Each word he spoke seemed to weave a tapestry of mystery and adventure, and as he recounted his experiences along the Sicken River, I found myself transported back to a long-forgotten chapter of my own life. It was the summer of 1985 when my dear friend John and I decided to escape the mundane routine of our lives for a fishing trip along the Sicken River. The mere mention of that river conjured memories of tranquility and beauty, a slice of paradise tucked away from the cares of the world. That yearning for the outdoors for adventure had led us to that fateful journey. As we cast our lines into the clear waters, the sun painted the sky with hues of gold and orange. The rimrock caves and overhangs above us seemed like ancient sentinels, casting cold black shadows upon the rugged terrain. The air was alive with the songs of birds, and I felt a sense of euphoria that can only come from being surrounded by nature's embrace. Yet it was beneath those very caves that our adventure would take an unexpected turn. The tranquility shattered as grunting noises echoed from above. The grunts were guttural, primal, like the kind of sounds a wild pig might make. Browump. Browump John and I exchanged startled glances, the camaraderie we had built over years of friendship communicating our shared unease. What creature could be making those noises from within the darkness above? The unease quickly gave way to a creeping sense of dread, and we began to edge away from the immediate vicinity of the caves. Our fishing poles felt suddenly insignificant, and an ominous atmosphere settled over us like a heavy shroud. Just as we were beginning to put... Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. At some distance between ourselves and the source of the unnerving sounds, the air was split by a high-pitched whistle scream, a sound that seemed to defy the very laws of nature. 
Our hearts pounded in our chests and we turned to look back at the cave in disbelief. And there it was, a sight that both thrilled and terrified us. Emerging from the cave's darkness, a creature of immense proportions came into view. Its form, covered in fur and moving with an uncanny agility, defied all rational explanation. In those heart-pounding moments, all thoughts of fishing were forgotten. The creature, with its enigmatic silhouette, crossed the rugged terrain with an eerie gracefulness, its steps deliberate and purposeful. And then, as suddenly as it had appeared, it disappeared over the top of a ravine. John and I stood there, still as statues, our minds struggling to process the encounter we had just experienced. The years have passed, but that memory remains etched in my mind. Moki's stories brought it all rushing back, as if the passage of time were a mere illusion. The tales of the sickened river hold within them a magic that transcends the mundane. As I looked into the dancing flames, I couldn't help but smile. Roy Caddy's stories, Moki's tales, and my own memories were now interwoven, creating a narrative that would continue to captivate and inspire long after the fire had burnt out. I reside in North Dakota and I work third shift. I go to many different locations and clean. One of the locations I go to has like deers and bunnies. I've encountered deer before and I know to keep my distance. Towards the end of my shift, which is around 4 a.m. to 5 a.m., my co-worker and I are in charge of taking out the trash. Next to this location is like a field with trees next to a park. In this area, it's always foggy in the morning. It's close to a river. We begin to bring the trash to the back of the building where the dumpsters are. I was next to the dumpster ready to lift my huge bag of trash. But something just told me to look. I turn to my right and across the street is a very tall, extremely skinny deer with huge antlers. While I stared at it, I couldn't stop thinking, what's wrong with its knees? Its knees were just so huge compared to the thin leg bones. This deer was extremely tall, and it began to walk towards my co-worker and I. Its legs were so long, and it wasn't moving correctly. The legs were just too long. Then another one appeared next to the first one. Due to the fog, they looked gray, not cream or brown. But this gray color, their eyes were glowing, and they just stared at us. I no longer wanted to look at these things, but my body kept telling me to look. I was afraid they were going to charge and attack us. I turned to run and my co-worker was already running towards the door. They did not make any sound. These deer were extremely quiet. Something just wasn't right with these deers. They gave me an uncanny feeling. These deers were well over six feet tall. Good evening, fellow enthusiasts. Let me start by validating my credibility first. I've been monitoring the crypt side for a good 15 years now, have a degree in zoology, and a master's focusing specifically on herpetology study of reptiles and amphibians for the newcomer. 
This academic background has greatly contributed to my pursuit of the known and the unknown. What I'm about to share is a living testament to my adventures in the dark corners of our world. And before I roll the dice on this, know that this is not some drunken tall tale. During the event, I was unadulteratedly sober, senses sharpened by the austere seaside chill. Yesterday, I had a harrowing encounter, the likes of which I've never encountered in my generous stretch of experiences facing the elusive nag's head beach creature. The moon was in complete authority, stars stubbornly shrouded behind the thick shroud of clouds. As the tide surreptitiously slid in I saw, or rather sensed something, a mere flicker at the corner of my vision, something that required peripheral acknowledgement. A fleeting shadow, a passing chill, an abrupt indent in reality. This being the nag's head beach creature, much like many obscure curiosities we study, appreciates the solitude of night. Nocturnal engagements are its preferred encounters, lingering in the periphery, solidifying its ghostly essence. A mystery etched in the sands of Nag's head, always visible from the sides, yet vanishing to thin air the moment direct contact is attempted. Illusory, you might say, but not when you've heard it the sound that threads chills through your spine. The creature and its movements spoke a peculiar language, an alien-like slithering rustle, a chicka-chicka, if you will. An uncanny sound clawing up your consciousness, it was akin to the whispers of nighttime wind through desolate dunes, or the uneasy scuttle of a crustacean against washed-up seashells, a serpentine orchestra only the nocturne listens to. Now, about its tracking signature footprints you wouldn't expect. They were digital, formed of an enigmatic static that pulsed before disappearing into the soothing waves. Ghostly lit specters on the sand left behind by its passing, as if the beach obliquely hummed with the static discharge of this creature. A modern mystery misaligned from anything we perceive as typical. And God forbid, should you strive to photograph this elusive entity, for it would defy the said attempt in an uncannily digital way again, rendering itself only a three-pixel smudge in any photo. An undefined form, yet mysteriously defined by its defiant resistance to be perceived. After the encounter, my mind whirled with theories and speculations this creature's nature, its ethereal presence, and its disembodied essence felt otherworldly. Pondering my experience, the possible explanation that eventually crystallized was dubiously paranormal. I believe that what I encountered was not a creature bound to the three dimensions we live in. It might be our first contact with a creature of the fourth dimension. The digital footprints, the confounding three-pixel apparition, and the ephemeral perceptibility all lead to an elusive creature that exists in a higher order of spatial existence, only partially interfacing with our three-dimensional space-time reality. A being transparent to us, living a parallel life wrapped in the splintering silence of the nag's head night. This is our world, the crypt side. A melting pot of varied realities, countless oddities, and incomprehensible encounters. This was my encounter with the elusive nag's head beach creature. 
an experience that tipped my skeptically academic life to a pondering, fear-churning paranoia. But isn't that why we're here? To chase the unknown and expose the veiled truths? Because, in the end, isn't that the very soul of cryptozoology? Stay curious, stay brave, and keep your mind open. I have a story I would like to share with you that happened to me when I was younger. I was 17 years old when this happened. I lived with my parents on a farm outside the Australian town of Wagga Wagga. I was in bed and a strange feeling I can't fully explain woke me up. The time was around midnight roughly. I felt a great sense of unease as I looked toward my bedroom window into the darkness of night. Not long after a bright light that looked like it came down from the sky appeared. At first I thought it was a car passing by as we lived next to the road, but I quickly excused that possibility as the light hung around. This is where things start to get a little unbelievable. I began hearing footsteps outside on the gravel, and I was shocked that our dogs didn't pick up on this and start barking. The footsteps came from the paddock next door and walked down our driveway and up the veranda steps out the back. I could hear whoever this was walking around outside our home, shifting things as it bumped into them. I then heard second footsteps in the gravel outside my room. Soon after the first being appeared outside my window, and the second then jumped up over the veranda railing and stood next to the first. Their forms blocked the light shining in, and I could make them out to be somewhat tall and incredibly thin. The two creatures hung around for about thirty minutes pacing back and forth around the house before they finally left, and I heard the footsteps get softer, jump the fence, and then the mysterious light lifted off into the sky. I had just gone to bed, so I know it wasn't my subconscious playing tricks on me. I was still well enough awake. The next night, another strange occurrence happened. I remember it being eerily silent. So quiet, in fact, that it made me increasingly paranoid as the night went on. I don't recall what time this happened, but I remember the only sound I could hear that night was a strange sort of deep rumbling passing overhead. It would circle over the house and to the far back paddock and continue to do so for an hour before the rumbling moved overhead for the last time out the back and vanished. A few years later, I finished school. Before moving into my own place, I had to get up very early in the mornings to drive to work. I woke up at 3 a.m. as usual, packed my bag, ate breakfast, etc., I was driving to work when I noticed a bright light in the sky. The light fell behind some of the hills to my right, and when I looked ahead, I swear I saw a figure of a man running across the road in the darkness. I saw it roughly five meters away from me. As it moved off the road, it appeared to just vanish as if it went translucent. If that wasn't enough, I was at the bar with my sister working as a bartender, and one of the locals walked in, we were casually just talking, and I told him what I saw, and he mentioned to me that a few nights after my encounter, he started getting strange occurrences, waking up after midnight to his dogs barking. He finally went to investigate the strange bright lights in the next door paddock, 
but his dogs wouldn't follow. He walked to the paddock where he claimed to have seen these lights hovering above the ground. When he got there the lights shot off into the sky and all was left was a ring of mutilated livestock forming a perfect circle. He was confused and ran back home and never spoke of what he saw until I mentioned it to him. After these events I never doubted stories told to me by friends and people I met who claimed to have seen UFOs and aliens and I have never since questioned the existence of extraterrestrials. Anyway, that's my story. I know what I saw those nights. I don't normally talk about it because people aren't very open to the concept of aliens and UFOs. Whether you believe me or not is up to you honestly. I just felt like sharing my experiences with you. The Leatherman was local folklore. Virtually everyone I knew in Connecticut had heard and wondered about the mysterious hobo who, clad in handmade leather clothes, had wandered our state in the 19th century, sleeping in caves and making brief, Bigfoot-like appearances in little rural towns. The few folks who encountered him as he trekked the same 365-mile circuit year after year say he communicated in fractured English and hand gestures, never quite holding a conversation and thus remaining an enigma. We had all seen the eerie Degra-type photograph of the Leatherman, a brutish vagrant with a frayed beard and wild, unstable eyes, his skin caked in grime, his homemade leather outfit stitched together like some awful sartorial Frankenstein. He was of great interest to me and my buddies. Todd, Jeremy, and I had always been obsessed with folklore and urban legends, even going as far as starting our own online vlog devoted to exploring, debunking, and investigating sightings and happenings in our native region. You may have even seen some of our videos, Though I doubt it, just like all those shitty Discovery Channel shows about hunting Bigfoot, we had never actually found anything. Despite our vlog, I was hesitant when Todd first told me he wanted to go explore the old Leatherman cave. I had a fear of tight spaces, and after hearing about a spelunker who got trapped in a cave and died in claustrophobic darkness, I had vowed never to make the same mistake. Todd said the cost of admission my discomfort was well worth the footage we'd grabbed for YouTube, and I had to admit there was a certain allure in visiting the caves where the famous folk legend had dwelled. Jeremy egged me on, and not wanting to be the Debbie Downer, I agreed to join them on a Friday after school for a little adventure. So we set off in Todd's shitty hatchback, heading up the interstate towards Watertown, Connecticut, off in search of the Leatherman. It was getting dark by the time we arrived at the Matatuck State Forest. Shadows were growing as we parked in the empty car park, which was nothing more than a dirt lot on the edge of the woods, and started up a thin hiking trail which led through the trees. This didn't seem right, I thought. The trail was narrow and overgrown. It felt disused, and I had a feeling we were trespassing. Sure enough, I looked up the Leatherman Cave on Google Maps and saw we were headed away from it. As a matter of fact, we had parked in the completely wrong area of the forest. 
Dude, we're going the wrong way, I said, slightly annoyed. We're going the right way, Bromeo, Jeremy said, blowing smoke from his cigarette. No, idiot, I said, showing him my phone. See, Todd sighed. I didn't want you to freak out. What? Freak out about what? Todd and Jeremy swapped looks. That one isn't the real Leatherman cave. I mean, yeah, he stayed there. But it's not even really a cave, just sort of an outdoor rock formation. The real cave, the one he slept in during the winter, that winds this way. What are you talking about, when you Google it? The real one isn't on Google, Jeremy said with a smirk. Todd got it from Cryptid82. That pissed me off even more. Cryptid82 was this crackpot conspiracy theorist who lived in our comments section name a conspiracy theory and he believed it beyond a doubt. Are you kidding me? That guy is nuts. Cool off, Todd said, trudging ahead. We're almost there. We could get lost or trapped in a cave-in or... We'll be fine, Jeremy said. There's not going to be a cave-in. You can wait in the car if you're going to be annoying about it. The thought of sitting alone in that empty dirt lot while the sun sank west and the moon crept in made me shudder. Whatever, I said under my breath, trudging along with them. As fate would have it, my friends didn't die in a cave-in. They did, however, die in a cave. I thought the cave entrance looked like a mouth like a great, rocky mouth had opened up in the forest floor to feed off those who came looking. By the time we had reached it forty minutes later, it had gotten dark. For the last ten minutes, we'd been navigating by flashlight. We all swapped awkward glances, none of us wanting to be the first one in. Ladies first, Todd finally said gesturing at me with the camcorder he held as if I'd obediently crawl in like a beaten dog. No chance, cameraman, I said. You first. I'll go first, Jeremy said with a sigh. And in he went, his flashlight illuminating the wide mouth of the cave. It looked worse than it was, sloping down like a set of craggy stairs, easily navigable with careful footing, and Jeremy made a good go of it. The end of the decline narrowed down into a tight entryway that led into the belly of the earth, just big enough for us to squeeze through. Jeremy reached it and paused, looking back at us. Come on, pussies, he called. Shall we? Todd asked, his face etched in the bluish light of the camcorder's monitor. I hesitated before nodding. And down we went, carefully and slowly, not wanting to wrench an ankle and spoil the night's fun. A few moments later, we reached the narrow entryway and squeezed through, beginning our winding journey down towards the Leatherman's cave. I was the first one to hear the noise, a soft weeping carrying up through the rock. We had found a massive cavern filled by huge pillars of stone and stalactite, which spiraled up and down at least fifty feet either way. It was incredible, and the space lit up in the glow of our flashlights, the mineral in the rock acquiring a strange luminescence. Jeremy and Todd were doing their usual overdramatic YouTube commentary while I searched for another tunnel that would lead us further. I had found one tucked away into the dark recesses of the cave, 
It was smaller than the first, but big enough for us to pass through if we crouched. That's when I heard it. The weeping. It trickled out like a run of water, faint and hollow. What the F? I muttered. I gestured the others over. Looks like David found something, Jeremy narrated to the camera as they joined me. Todd shoved the camera in my face. So David, what'd you... Say ch-ch-ch-ch, I hissed. Quiet, listen. They listened. They heard the distant weeping, but now I thought it must be moaning, and I saw their faces change in a synchronicity which would have been comical under other circumstances. Their brows furrowed, their postures coiled with tension. What the F? Jeremy whispered. You getting this? Todd nodded cupping his hand around the camera's shotgun mic so it would capture the noise in decent clarity. Might just be the wind, Todd said, not sounding convinced. Let's find out, I said, indicating the tunnel from which the weeping siphoned out. Todd and Jeremy looked at each other uneasily, which gave me some satisfaction. They had abruptly sprung this on me, and now I intended to see it through. I don't know, dude, Jeremy started. I think we should. I ignored him and started through the low-bearing tunnel. Todd, camera poised, hesitated, but only for an instant before following me through. Jeremy came last. I could hear his breath, thick and measured, laced with fear. I awoke with the world inverted. I was dangling upside down in a cave which stunk of rot and wore the meager glow of an old lantern. I could see the lantern guttering from a nail on the wall and gagged at the putrid stench it gave off. It was only later that I realized that lantern was burning human fat. Something warm and sticky dampened my hair. Blood. The pounding in my head had just begun like two big tribal drums and as I felt the warm syrup run from my head, a dull pain took form in the back of my skull. I wasn't sure how long I had been out, and couldn't for the life of me remember what had led to this moment. Thinking about it only made my head worse, so I stopped trying. I heard it groan, then a scream, a shriek of pure agony. That was Jeremy, howling like molten fire was being drizzled over his eyes. I swung my weight, trying to shift around for a look. It was hard. My hands were bound with coarse rope, and my feet were to the sky secured to a length of rope, which ran over and under the lumpy rock formations like a pulley system. I struggled and grunted, my head pounding from the exertion. Finally, when I thought my brain might pop, I managed to turn around. I saw them. Time froze. I remembered. We had been inching through the tunnel for a while now. This one was longer than the first. We were crouched, shuffling along in single file, grunting each time a lip of rock barked a shin or an elbow, and we had been this way for at least six hours. In reality, it had only been thirty minutes, and by then I was desperate to get the F out of here. My legs were screaming with aches and pains, and I was thinking about the bath I'd take later, so I didn't register what Todd said at first. What? I asked, incredulous. There's light, he insisted. And he was right. A distant portal of orange light, flickering like firelight, like lamplight, glowed from ahead. 
I was too tired to contemplate what that might mean. I honestly thought it might be a tunnel exit which would spit us out above ground by someone's campsite. In a way, I wasn't wrong, but it didn't surface above ground. The smell slapped us in the face as we drew closer. It was the tepid reek of rotting things, wafting in like poison gas. Jesus Christ, Jeremy gagged. What is that? Something must have crawled in here and died, said Todd, pinching his nose with his free hand. The smell was nearly suffocating by the time we crawled out of the tunnel and stepped into the dimly lit cave. It was about the size of a garage, partitioned by huge spires of stalagmite, which rose from the floor and split the room in half. There were dead things strewn about, animals mostly, some humans. A hiker, his bloody corpse half hidden beneath a rotting pile of bodies, humans and animals and some which could have been either. Bloody leather hides were tacked to the wall and the floor was stained and sticky with black blood. Flies swarmed in dizzying clouds. I realized only after that those leather hides were human. The guttering light came from a lantern hanging on the far wall that side of the cave was screened from view by the massive wall of rock which rose halfway to the ceiling. It was hot, humid, dizzying. Jeremy gagged and heaved, and a great blast of vomit shot from his mouth. Todd grunted, turned, and puked too, splattering the cave floor in the school cafeteria's finest Salisbury steak. I stood there in stunned silence. Suddenly, the room was doused in darkness. Someone had killed the lantern. Guys, what's going on? Todd asked. Fear and eyes, which were dimly illuminated by the camcorder's side screen. I don't, I started. We need to get out of here now. Jeremy whispered, the last words I'd ever hear him say. There was the meaty shuffling of heavy feet. Then there was a cry, a scream, a sickening crunch, and the thud of a body hitting the floor. One flashlight smacked the ground and shattered. The remaining two beams of light mine and Todd's, I think, swung around frantically. A shape moved through the darkness, bulky in his leather attire. Todd let out a sudden cry, which was cut short by the crackle of bone. I heard his body hit the ground with a limp thud. I oriented myself and scrambled for the tunnel out of this nightmare. I found it with my light, and had just managed to pull myself in when I felt something move behind me. The air shifted. It got warmer. Hands clamped down on my ankles and yanked me back into the cave. I cried out. The other thing hissed. He reeked of dead fish. He grunted and hissed again. I screamed and kicked my legs, fighting away. I found my feet and lunged for the tunnel. I heard a whoosh of air as something hard and blunt was swung. It impacted my skull with a crackle. A flower of light burst across my vision. I crumpled into darkness. When I woke up I was hanging upside down. I was upside down and I had managed to turn just enough to see my friend Todd slumped over in the corner. At first I wasn't sure what I was looking at. His whole body was grisly and red. I realized that was his muscle, sinewy and drenched in blood, 
for he had been flayed head to toe and looked like something from a scientific textbook. Flies drank from the sticky pool of ichor that was spreading beneath them. Vomit rumbled in my stomach. I fought it back, my head swiveling as I searched for the screaming Jeremy. I saw the Leatherman first. His hunched, drooping frame draped in those leather clothes, which I now knew were made from the skin of human beings. He was big and paunchy, with a weird frame unlike any man I had ever seen. It was huge and disjointed, oddly crooked, like a giant with severe curvature of the spine. He held a sharpened jawbone like a knife, and was in the process of flaying my friend, sawing the skin from his flesh as blood poured out in a great red river. Jeremy was wrapped around a stalagmite, bound and blubbering for mercy. His legs were a bloody mess. Flaps of skin, red and bleeding, hung from his exposed muscle, tendon and bone like peeling wallpaper. Jeremy, sobbing, screaming, suddenly began to shake. He had gone into some kind of fit, bucking and rattling against his binds, brutally convulsing under the strains of his situation. The Leatherman grunted and promptly sawed the bone knife through Jeremy's neck. Blood came pouring out, more blood than I had ever seen. I squeezed my eyes shut, unable to watch any more that was my fate soon and I didn't have much time. I quickly padded my jean pockets, hoping it hadn't fallen out. I was looking for my Leatherman brand multi-tool knife. The irony of the name wasn't lost on me, and I was flooded with relief when I felt the hard rectangle in my left pant pocket. I fished out the knife and began to saw through my sturdy binds. After an eternity, the rope split and my hands fell free. I was reaching up for my ankles when I heard a grunt. I went limp, wrists together, pretending I was still bound and immobile. Through slitted eyes, I watched the Leatherman lumber towards me, his bloody jawbone knife in hand. His eyes were a startling baby blue as bright and clear as a sun-blasted sky. His coarse black hair shot out at weird angles, and his beard, which was patchy and thin, held together a face like a potato. He reached me and paused, sensing something. I could feel his hot, congested breath on my cheeks, and it took every ounce of strength I had not to lose my bladder. I wasn't sure I could do this, and at the same time I had to. My hand shot out and sheathed the blade of my pocket knife in the Letterman's neck. I felt it go in with nauseating ease, sinking into his hot flesh like a knife through butter. I wrenched it free without hesitation. It was such a clean incision that for a moment the cut didn't present itself. His neck appeared intact until he reached up with a kind of stunned stupidity, and then a great rush of blood roared from his severed jugular. He screeched and batted my head with the palm of his hand. It was like getting hit in the face by a baseball. I cried out and flinched, feeling a solar flare of agony shoot through my brain. My vision blurred and when it realigned, I saw him raising the jawbone at my stomach. I grunted and punched the tip of my knife at his bright blue left eye. It was not an accurate stab. Actually, it was way off and had he not stepped into the trajectory, I would have missed completely. But he did step into it, and the three-inch blade disappeared into his eye. 
pinning his eyeball to the back of its socket. I felt the eyeball pop, and a rush of hot pus and ocular fluid dribbled out around my hand. I cried out in disgust and tried to yank the knife free, but the flimsy blade snapped off at the handle. I didn't care. By then the Leatherman was swaying dizzily, and a moment later his body was buckling backwards. He thudded to the ground and convulsed for a moment before stilling, his leather-bound body drenched in blood both his and my friend's. For the next two hours I snipped away at the rope, binding my feet with the tiny scissors on my Leatherman multi-tool. They were thin and weak and for a frightening while I was certain I would never escape this cave alive. Then the rope split with a sound like paper tearing, and I was on the floor in a puddle of blood, staring at the bodies of my friends, those that came before us, and the thing that had taken them all. It took another two interminable hours to crawl back through the dark veins of the earth and find a section of woods that had any cell reception. At that point I called the police and screamed. It's years later and that night still haunts me. As I write this at 3 a.m., a damp nightmare sweat drying on my skin, I think about my friends and the thing that dwelled in those caves. The police said he was a vagrant. He had no family, no ID, and his DN didn't match any known records. People online have speculated that he was something else. I myself have, too. I write this more as a word of warning than anything else. I guess I just want to say, no matter what, don't go looking, unless you're certain you're prepared to face what you might find. In 1905, a young girl was sent by her parents to gather fruit in the area of Tenerife, Canary Islands, just before supper. However, the girl never returned, and a massive search was conducted all over Tenerife for her. She was never found. However, three decades later, in 1958, the young girl reportedly returned, looking exactly the same as the time that she disappeared. According to her, only 15-20 minutes had gone by. According to the girl, as she was collecting pears from a pear grove, she noticed a very tall man dressed in white standing near her. Strangely, she felt no fear, but instead felt a strange attraction toward the man. The tall entity then invited the girl to follow him, and she immediately accepted. The girl accompanied the stranger into a nearby ravine named Barranco de Badajoz, where there was a descending set of steps and the girl followed the white-clad stranger down. At the bottom of the steps, there was a garden in which there were other similar white-dressed entities. The girl remembers speaking for a few minutes with a strange group and later was guided back up the steps by the initial entity, which then bade farewell to the girl. Incredibly to the girl, it had only been missing 15-20 minutes, but in actuality 30 years had gone by. Apparently, the investigators were frustrated by the lack of cooperation by the local authorities about the event. Only one local elderly woman came forward and suggested that the girl of the pairs might still be alive. 